This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how we support the next generation of leaders, our kids, and in particular, those kids who are, you know, 15 to 25 years old, that age where they're the first to tell you that they're not children and we're the first to tell them that they're not adults. Our phones are open and we're taking calls at 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Are you suffering through the college search like I am with your kid? Are you feeling rejected by a headstrong teenager? Give us a call. Tell us about it. The number is 844-WHARTON. And that's 844-942-7866. We will share your pain and turn to today's guests for some really expert advice. Once again, get taking calls at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Lisa Heffernan and Mary Dell Harrington are the authors of Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teen, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. They're also the founders of the Grown and Flown website, an online community of more than 200,000 parents with older children, which was launched when each of their youngest kids were in high school. And it's now the largest website for parents of kids of that age and engages, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people. In past incarnations, Lisa and Mary Dell have worked in television and media on Wall Street and in politics, and they've managed to do it all while shepherding their own kids into adulthood. So welcome to Women at Work, Lisa and Mary Dell. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Laura. Thanks for having us. So Mary Dell, I want to start with you. How did this start, the website start? How did you get a sense that sharing information about this online was both important and would have an audience? Well, Lisa and I have five kids between our two families. And after our three older boys had gone off to college, we still had our two younger ones in 10th grade. And we had become friends and worked as parent volunteers together. And over the years, we were dismayed to see that there were there was just very little written for this age group. There were many things written for um, parents who have younger kids. Mm-hmm. Zero to three is a huge hot topic <laughs> in the blogosphere, but very little was written about what we think are the most consequential age uh, is most consequential age of parenting. You know, the teenage years. So we thought we would just start a blog. And we knew not much about what that would involve, and we never dreamed that Grown and Flown would become this large website. Um, we just started it with the two of us. Lisa, of course, is a, is a published author and has a New York Times bestselling book. Uh, that So she had beautiful writing skills to bring to the <laughs> table, and I've got two decades of work in national media in New York. Um, but really, we were just quite fortunate in being um, at the right place at the right time when parents who are accustomed to getting digital parenting advice um, came our way and we're looking for advice on, on raising their teens. Before I get into the content of the work itself in your book and the 10,000 questions I have as the mm-hmm. mom of a 17-year-old, um, how did you find your business model? Um, so, Because I know that this is what you're doing full-time, both of you, correct? Yes. We have multiple revenue streams and uh, it, we we didn't necessarily have the strategic business plan. Um, we're sort of embarrassed to admit that because <laughs> we're both MBAs, and you would think that we would be we would have approached it that way. But because the um, digital publishing in this space is a dynamic uh, and evolving um, business sector, we learned as we went along. We also reached out to people who had been doing it for years ahead of us, and they were so generous with their time and their suggestions. Um, so we, uh, you know, were able to uh, originally connect with Blogger, which has become She Knows, um, and I think has been purchased by another media company. <laughs> but they became our programmatic advertiser and kind of shepherded us into the world of um, having a having a revenue stream with advertising and also with working with brands. Um, that has really both of those things have really grown along with. Um, understanding and and uh, working on our gift list, which gets us allows us to dabble in sort of the affiliate marketplace. And you also have um, a retail component of the website. We, we do. We um, have uh, a Amazon shop 
that um, they were um, happen- they were generous enough to let us have <laughs> our own grown and flown shop on Amazon. So we don't manufacture our own things. We do have some socks and mugs and things like that that have you know that are branded. But basically, um, Amazon is our biggest affiliate platform. So when our retail operations really almost I would say seventy five percent run through Amazon. Is it that you guys are curating the products that are on there? Yes, we yeah. are. We also do this with the help of our Grown and Flown community, our Facebook group, which now has over 130,000 members, are so active and so interested in sharing uh, great ideas of gifts and um, wonderful dorm supplies and thing, dorm supplies and things that they that their kids have found real utility in, um, books and podcasts and. Um, audiobooks and you know you name it they're talking about things that make their lives better and that they think make their kids lives better and they're wonderful about sharing their ideas and and we um, have been you know fortunate to be able to sort of curate their best ideas and um, put them all in sort of one place for one-stop shopping for our, our community. I actually wanted to ask you a little about that, because with such a large audience, so much input, both in terms of questions and answers, how do you curate them? Um, the advice that you give is so responsible. It's so thoughtful. That's hard work. How do you sort through it and um, navigate your way to what you think is the right way to address the, all these questions? I've been talking a lot. <laughs> no, no, it's seven days a week. It's literally 24 hours a day. We have seven of us who manage the Facebook group, which is 130,000 members. We also post new content on the website almost every single day and have millions of page views on that site. So the way we do it is um, the the group very much comes to the support of the individual members. Um, but over the years, we've been able to curate some amazing experts on lots of different topics who are happy to help us and weigh in. Um, for instance, last night, we just did a Facebook Live on college admissions with the head of admissions at Georgia Tech. So this is a man who accepts tens of thousands of students um, over the course of his career, has probably read you know, hundreds of thousands of applications. So you know that the advice that he is giving is not somebody who's far removed from the process, but somebody who lives in it every mm-hmm. day and is very thoughtful about it. So we're trying to bring to our members resources like that. I would not begin to offer myself as an expert on college admissions. <laughs> I've been through the process precisely three times. And as I said last night on the on the uh, Facebook Live, it still gives me nightmares. I still like that, that nightmare that you have that you haven't studied for the test. Yeah. My nightmare is that my kids still have to apply to college and that I have to do it all over again. <laughs> But we've been amazingly fortunate. I mean, one thing about developing a large audience is that experts also want to get in front of that audience. There's mm-hmm. something for in it for them as well. So we've been able to bring people of that caliber um, who really know what they're talking about and live what they're talking about to our audience. I think one of the gifts that you bring all of us, in addition to the audience that you're coalescing, is a way that, you know, as writers, you synthesize the information and help express it in ways so that we can take it in. Um, Lisa, talk to me a little bit about what you've learned about this stage of life, late adolescence, and why it's so hard for kids and why it's so hard for parents. Well, it's so hard for parents and kids because our kids need to pull away from us. It's, you know, it's designed in the species. It's been coded into us forever. The difficulty at this moment, what seems more difficult now than we've ever felt before, is we are closer to our kids than, than we were to our parents at the same age. This generation is much closer. We're, they talk By magnitudes. They, by magnitudes. And the data all shows it, and the data's in our book, and we talk about it um, regularly. So we are trying to tread ground that we are not very comfortable with. We don't want to stop them from growing up. We're not trying to inhibit their independence. But at the same time, that closeness that our families are experiencing is absolutely fundamental to all of us. So we are constantly walking a tightrope between doing too little and too much. And we cannot look at our own adolescence as a model for us. And I think that's where a lot of the challenge comes from. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, even in my own, I know that by the time I was 18, I thought I was never coming home again. I was ready to go. And I had a very different, and I love my mom, but I had a very different relationship with her than I have with my daughter. And, you you know. When you went to college, you probably talked to your parents once a week on the phone. On a pay phone. Yeah. Yeah. And 
if your parents were like my parents, while you were having that five-minute phone call, they were reminding you how expensive that five-minute <laughs> phone call was. Were you there? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, while we loved our parents and our parents loved us, and there can be little doubt about that, we weren't, they weren't integrated into our lives. You're sending a kid to college. You will still know what's happening in her day-to-day life. She will take a picture of something she's eating, and she will send it to you. She will, you know, something funny will happen, and she'll either, you know, shoot you a quip or send it to your family thread. Your family is probably all in a thread together, as, as many families are. So that conversation that we talk about, we talk about that conversation going from the wooden dinner table to the digital dinner table, where the conversation just continues in a different form. That's a great metaphor. So for people like me who are afraid that I'm like that she's really going away, that I'm going to lose her. Um, yeah. That the and especially when we just got past what were some of those particularly hard years, and yeah. like we're having a blast together, yeah. just like and it's so, painful that this happens this way, right? They suddenly become you know buddies with you again, and now it's time for them to go. I know she's fabulous and she's leaving. Um, so <laughs> this metaphor of how do we create. So the dinner table, it's a metaphor for how we create a time each day where we connect with each other and share something? It's more that the way – so I have three sons, and you can imagine what that's like. It involves a lot of poking fun at each other. It involves sending people the funniest, stupidest things they've seen that day. Um, That's what happened at our dinner table, and that's what happens in our family thread. So the conversation, while it isn't a particular time of the day – The same tone of conversation, the way we interacted, has just moved into the digital space. My kids are completely grown up. I have two kids who live 3,000 miles away. They're really independent. I'm really not running their lives. But we are in that constant contact because of the digital devices that we all have in our hands. And it may not be just a a text thread, too. it, it could it, with our with my two kids. I have a son and a daughter who both live in Manhattan, which and we live in Westchester County, just twenty five miles apart. I find that we're communicating on Instagram all the time. They're sending me something funny that they've seen. They're sharing it. We have a, a, three of us have a little conversation. My husband's not on Instagram, so <laughs> I tell him all the time that he's missing out on these really funny little videos and commentary. I have to show him. So it could be, you know, as technology changes too, it might not. It might morph from the group thread or the WhatsApp that you um, yep. use, Lisa, don't you? Use yep. something, a group, a group me, I think. So there, as technology changes, your conversation may leap to these other platforms, yep. so, which is really fun. It sounds fun, but it also sounds like it's um, an example of a shift in a power dynamic that we're accustomed when it comes to technology, but we're not accustomed accustomed to in the rest of their lives, where my daughter clearly knows more about tech than I do. Um, She's the one giving me instructions on how to do stuff, even though I'm desperately trying to encourage her not to do so much stuff online. Um, And that it's a place where she has expertise that I don't. And there are other aspects of life where I like to think I have a little expertise that she doesn't. How do we make that shift, not just in how we use social media, and tech. But how do we start making that shift from we know best to letting them know best about their own lives? I think I think we have to look at um, raising our kids into emerging adulthood almost like we're apprenticing them. And we want to be less, you know, telling them what to do and more giving them advice, preferably when they ask for it. Mm-hmm. That, that takes a lot of, you know, tongue biting and <laughs> a lot of self-control along the way. But if you're on that continuum, you know, in certain ways in your life with your teen, you'll find that you're, you're, you're getting there. You're getting to the relationship of adult to adult, which will really be, God willing, the relationship that you have that lasts many more decades than just Zero to 18. <laughs> right. Um, if for those who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Lisa Heffernan and Mary Dell Harrington about their book and all they have learned, Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teen, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. They are a source of wisdom and compassion, and our phones are open. So give us a call at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, and let us know what are you struggling with with your teenager, or what are you proud to share with all of us? that you learned the hard way. Um, so, Lisa, I want to step back into this question of let, how we learn to listen and the difference between instructing them and giving advice, when we're, we listen without trying to fix it, and when um, we do have an open door to step in with um, maturing children. So the, the best metaphor around this one is teaching someone to drive. Um, 
if you, you, you probably already taught a child mm-hmm. to drive if you have a 17-year-old, but even if you haven't taught a child to drive, most of us were taught to drive. So we, we know what it feels like when one person sitting in the driver's seat doesn't know what they're doing and one person sitting in the passenger seat and they do know what they're doing and how difficult that balance is. But it's, it's, a, it's a continuum. And we should be looking at the high school years on the same continuum. At the beginning, we have a lot of control. At the end, we want to have almost no control. The goal is in the driving is to get to the point where you can sit in the passenger seat and read your emails and answer your emails. That's the goal. (laughs) Almost there. Not quite yet. (laughs) Where you don't even have to look up because you know your kid can drive. But at the beginning, you actually have to be ready to grab the wheel. The first time you take a kid out to drive in real traffic you actually have to know that you could have to intervene Mm -hmm. because they really don't know what they're doing. So if we think about it that way, that we're going from the point at which we only intervene in their lives. The only time you would intervene when you're teaching a kid to drive is if they're going to harm themselves or harm somebody else. Okay. That's if they're going to go up on a curb or, you know, if they're going to, you know, run over a branch or something, you're going to let it be because they need to learn. So if we think about it in that metaphor, it works really well. Mm-hmm. We're, we're on a continuum. We're less and less control. We're going, as Mary Dell said, we're going from telling them what to do to advising them what to do. But at the point at which they are going to harm themselves or harm other people, we are going to step in, even if that means they're 17 or 18 years old. And that's actually a marvelous analogy and a very useful phrase, because also when we think about the other institutions um, that are there supporting them and giving them many experiences, like high school and colleges at this point, um, that's an important test that the colleges also apply um, to whether or not intervention is warranted. But the important thing is also when they're driving, you're happy to give advice. When they say, <laughs> you, you know, when you say, when they say, can I make that light or what, who goes first at this intersection? You know, when you pull up to a four-way stop and they're a little confused about who goes first or I thought that light meant I could go. You are always there. You are always there in the passenger seat while they're learning to answer questions. And we remain in that role for a very, very mm-hmm. long time in their lives. The one thing the research is showing us and we talk about in the book We have a lot more influence on our kids for a lot longer than we think as long as we don't try and control them. When we try and control them, that's where it all goes horribly wrong. It isn't about our closeness. We can be incredibly close to them. We can be very involved in their lives as long as we're not trying to control them. And so talk to me more about that. So the risk is that if we try and hold on to them too tightly, they're going to pull away in an even more urgent fashion? Yes. It also means we don't respect them. It means we don't respect their their individual nature. We don't respect their growing autonomy. If we show them that we respect where they're going, we respect their autonomy, we respect their judgment, but we are always here, um, then then it goes well. We, we, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about the damage of helicopter parents, but more and more research is coming out that it isn't actual helicoptering, meaning being close to your kids. It's intervening. It's not trusting them. It's trying to control them. Those are the dangers. If you don't do those things, you can still be very involved in their life and be a very, very positive influence. And right. And I think that's where the metaphor of the helicopter to me is this noisy hovering, um, yeah. ready to swoop in. And that's different than being on the sidelines and being there as a, as a form of support and a resource when they ask for it. Right. And it's s- the controlling aspect that really, as Lisa said before, is where all the trouble comes in, not the closeness. And right. not the support. And I have to say, um, my daughter has been trying to make this clear to me, which I appreciate, and she's done it very <laughs> kindly. Um, They're but good at that, aren't they? <laughs> amazing. But the thing that I appreciate the, of the way you just frame this, which is so fundamental, and I think it applies not just to our relationship with our kids, but with our partners or our coworkers, is that um, when are we communicating a lack of respect? Yeah. And so talk to me about in this process of helping them go out there, helping them feel connected in a healthy way. Um, What are the ways in which we should be trying to express our respect for them? Are there particular things we should pay attention to? So if we want to do it in a positive way and not just not do the bad things. So our kids know it. They know what we like. They know what we don't like. They know what we approve of. They know what we would prefer that they do. When they do something that we know they know is not wouldn't be our first choice. It can be the classes they pick, it can be the way they wear their hair, it can be what they've pierced. <laughs> it can be it can be anything, any of the things that teenagers do. And we accept it wholeheartedly. Then we're saying to them, wouldn't be my choice, it's your choice and I 
I'm there to respect it. So over and over again in small ways as they're making decisions that we wouldn't make. So even things like um, I've got kids who did their schoolwork at the last moment. It made me psychotic, (laughs) literally psychotic. But I had to learn just to let them do it because over and over again they had shown me that even though they were doing it at the last minute, it got done and it got done to the standard that we agreed that they needed to work at. So I need to show them that respect and, and just sort of back off. Um, so it's, it's showing them that even though it wouldn't be your choice, you completely accept that it's theirs and you, and you stand behind it, not begrudgingly, but wholeheartedly. What about when they're, um, they haven't come to us, um, but we see them doing something that we're concerned about? How and when do we approach them so that um, they're likely to hear us, but that we're not communicating disrespect? It's tricky. If it's something that is of major, you know, risk to their health and well-being, obviously we have to intervene. I mean, that's going back to the car analogy mm-hmm. where they're about to crash or harm, <laughs> harm themselves or someone else. We have to grab the wheel. So it's always sort of a question of degree, and it's also a question of, you know, your kid uh, and their pattern and whether this is a one-off or it's something that's consistent. It's very hard to make sort of uh, blanket statements about what all parents should do with all kids. Of course. Um, so it's a little bit, and I don't mean to weasel out of that question. but <laughs> No, it's, it's fair. You're, you're right. Well, you, the, the other thing. I might add to that is sometimes it's best if another adult steps in. There are times when an mm. aunt or an uncle or a teacher or a coach can express something or a physician, their pediatrician sometimes is the right person to talk if it's, a, if it's a health issue. Sometimes just getting them into the hands of another adult who, you know, where it's not so charged and it's not my mom coming down on me once again, you know, um, that can be very constructive. Absolutely. For those who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Lisa Heffernan and Mary Del Harrington about their book, Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teen, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. They've got great advice, big hearts. They kind of understand what you're going through. So if you're struggling through the stage with your kids, give us a call. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, I want to use something that's kind of timely to get some advice for you from you guys on how to approach it. So, Lisa, let me start with you. Um, Early decision applications are due at many schools this Friday. As I walked into my daughter's high school today, I could see I could feel the stress in the air. I can see it in her discourse with her friends. I can hear it in the parents' voices. Um, Given what a fraught time this is, what can we do as parents to not make it worse. Um, so one of the things we could do to not make it worse is not raise the stakes higher. Whether your kid gets into any one particular school, and the, the reason I say one particular school because often early decision involves, you know, mm-hmm. student committing to go to one school and et cetera, et cetera, is not going to be the factor that changes their life entirely. They are not going to be a success or a failure because of the decision of one admissions um, committee. I think it's really important. We, we spoke about this last night with um, Rick Clark, as I mentioned, the head of admissions at Georgia Tech. He said it's very important for us to understand that this is a human and highly fallible process <laughs> and that every every competitive school, every uh, selective school has many, many more applicants than they have spaces who are all fully qualified. The problem is when our kids don't get accepted, it becomes natural for us to say, why didn't they get accepted? And we think we can come up with an answer. And the answer is often, there just were a lot of kids who looked just like our kid. That's the answer. And some some of them got in and some of them didn't, and our kid didn't do anything wrong. So to just try and dial that down a bit, mm-hmm. and um, but Frank Bruni, as you may know, has a wonderful book about this, um, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, yep. um, where he where he talks about the many paths to success and, and what the data shows about what how much it matters what school our kids go to. So just taking the stakes down a little bit. Second thing. The thing that scares them even more than not getting accepted is disappointing us. Yes. That's the scariest thing to a teenager. They need to understand that we will not be disappointed in them, that we know that they did their best. All they can do is try hard and put it out there, and if they've done that, we have to, we have to convey that we have no disappointment. We might be disappointed in the admissions committee, but we're not mm-hmm. disappointed in our child. 
that is really what they fear. And if we can take that off the table, we've really taken a lot of the pressure off the table. It's true. I think that one might be particularly hard because as I was talking with a couple of old friends recently, um, we each of us was trying to do our own gut check to say to what degree do we get emotionally invested in this process in the way that our kids are a reflection of us and how can we cut that off so that we're not putting that burden onto them like that's our crap that's not theirs exactly that exactly what you said which is even better than I could have possibly said it (laughs) is what we need to do this is our work to do this isn't it's not fair to make this their problem They have enough going on. They're teenagers. This is a tough world right now. (laughs) So it sounds like our job is really to, one, um, communicate that we respect them and that we respect them for who they are and that um, to help them, if it doesn't go the way that they want, is to let them grieve for a little bit, process it, and move on, but not to invest their self-worth in it. Yeah, two things about that. One is the faster we move on, the faster they'll move on. So sometimes it's the parents who are doing the grieving. Yes. Particularly when there's an alma mater involved or there's some reason a parent is particularly attached to a particular university. Um, we live in a country with lots of amazing universities, so we have to we have to try and move on and, and be the adult in the room, so to speak. <laughs> right. Um, the second thing is um, to make sure they don't think for one minute that anything about our love is impacted by that. Um, Jess Leahy does a lot of speaking, and when she goes from school to school, she's the author of The Gift of Failure. She says she finds that kids feel that their parents' love is contingent on certain performance. We need to make perfectly clear that those two things are, they don't touch each other. They're in right. different worlds. Um, because losing our love is, is one of the most terrifying things for them. So they have to know that can't happen. Yes. And so it's not about how they perform. It's about who they are. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to come back to you with uh, a bunch of questions about college students. But first, we have a caller. So I'd like to welcome Jim. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening to Women at Work. What's on your mind? Oh, great. I uh, really appreciate it. First time I've ever listened to the show, and I've enjoyed it for the last couple hours. The uh, question I have is in regards to you know, housing for freshmen going into college. It's been 30 years since I went first child to go away for college. And really trying to look at insights and what to expect. Uh, for a freshman uh, who generally is, I would not say necessarily the most outgoing person, but very friendly. Uh, If they're friendly, that's going to be fantastic because one of the most important things for them to know, Jim, is is this your child who's in college right now or going off next year? No, we uh, did the feverish applications a few days ago. (laughs) We did some earlier He's applied to five schools and been accepted to three of them so far. Yay, but that's all, fantastic. Yeah, they're all eight hours away, though. So well, mom and dad are a little nervous. <laughs> it's Our daughter went seven hours away, and we managed, so hang in there. Um, yeah. You know what? Being friendly is a great attribute, um, a great skill, because at the very beginning of school, there's this phenomenon that doesn't really happen later on. No one thinks it's weird if you go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm a new, you know, are you a freshman here? Or, hey, can I sit here? Everyone is so much more open to making friends the first six or eight weeks of school than they ever will be later on. So if your teen um, is is a little outgoing or friendly, however you define it, um, that will be hugely valuable. You should also remember to give them a doorstop when they go off to school so that they can easily keep their freshman dorm door open from time to time to encourage people who, are, who are, will soon be their hallmates and good friends to come in and just sort of hang out and chit-chat. Oh, that's a great idea. I never thought about that. Appreciate that. Yeah, I think um, it's excellent idea. And the other thing, Jim, is that um, what I've seen with a lot of freshmen coming in, those who are friendly but still nervous, is that um, a little encouragement to get tuned into the activities that are going on, to connect them to their RAs, um, to make sure that they feel connected to somebody who's there from student services who can just welcome them into the fold. It's like you give them the handoff and then they're good to go, especially if they're not extroverted. The last thing I would add, Jim, is Lisa, is um, there's a lot of research. We have a lot of research over the last 50 years of freshmen. UCLA has been doing a longitudinal study, which looks at lots of different things. And one of the things they found is that over 60% of freshmen are homesick at some point. Now, every one of those 60% of freshmen think they're the only one who's homesick. 
And I think one of the problems is we send kids off telling them this is going to be the best four years of your life. And as we say in the book, one of my sons who loved college like nobody I've ever known has loved college describes it as the best three and a half years of your life. That first semester where you may not have many friends, you're far from home. If you if you have a dog, your dog isn't there with you. Um, <laughs> your family, your siblings, that may not be the very best moment in their life. So I think we can help our kids a lot by setting up really realistic expectations and saying, you may be a little lonely, you may be a little homesick, you may feel like the work is a little confusing. Call us, we're here. Everybody's going through the exact same thing. I think that's yeah, really that's, great advice. And that's don't let suggestion. them think that their kids, that. their friends' Instagram pictures are the reality. <laughs> Everybody puts their best foot forward with Instagram, so they begin to think that the colleges where all their friends went are where all the fun is happening. And it's not happening where they are, but that's just kind of an Instagram facade. <laughs> Jim, I hope that's helpful. It's been very helpful. Thank you very much. And thank you for calling and tuning in. If anybody else would like to call, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So since Jim's brought us into this conversation that I wanted to have anyway of, you know, how do we prep them to go to college and how do we help them in the earliest stages? Another one of the things that's coming up um, this weekend and next weekend is Parents Weekend at many schools. Um, this is going to be the first time for many where their parents get to reunite with their kids in this new environment. What advice do you have for us for um, how to prepare for it and how to make the most of it? Well, you definitely want to have realistic expectations about how much time you'll actually see your college freshmen. Because at this point, they may have already gotten involved in some clubs, some activities, Lisa tells an amazing story of when she went to Parents Weekend and her son wasn't even there. You're kidding. <laughs> no, he didn't tell me until I got there. He'd gone to play a game at another school. Oh, my God. So you had a lovely visit of the buildings he lives in. Um, I went to some classes, and then I left, and I never saw him. Yeah. Oh, that's um, crazy. Okay, so let's so, first RSVP to our kids. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. What you, what you also want to do is, um, you know, not assume that your kid is going to want is going to want to spend every waking moment with you. You know, you sort of let them take the lead. One way to, though, um, have a pretty good idea that your kid is going to want to join you is if you um, invite them to a big dinner and invite their roommate or friends who maybe whose parents may not be able to come. But feeding is always a really good thing because certainly by this point they are really sick of the dining hall. Okay. I'm gonna, we're going to put this to use next weekend. My, we're going up to visit my sweetheart's son at school. Oh, wonderful. Um, so let's back up for a little minute because, you know, there's where Jim is and where I am. Our kids are applying. We're trying to figure out once we survive this application process how we actually then get through the journey from we've tuition deposited to we're kissing them goodbye and driving away from school. Um, emotionally and practically, what should how should we be thinking about the next few months? The, the, the book is full of practical suggestions, and we would actually keep you here for hours if we bored you, <laughs> we bored you with it. Yeah, the section in it is really amazing. It's already dog-eared, and I've taken pictures and shared them with friends. Oh, yeah. thank you. Um, We're so happy about that. The overall uh, advice here is that it's not 1986. There is nothing your kid can't get delivered to their dorm room. Less is more. So parents, because we feel this pain about them leaving, we sometimes take it out by trying to buy things, um, <laughs> just just watch a parent in Target or Bed Bath & Beyond you know, over the summer trying to foist things on an 18-year-old who wants no part of all this junk that her, his or her mother is filling the trolley with, uh, the shopping cart with. So I think it's super important to remember this isn't the moment that it was. Don't waste a lot of money. Don't waste a lot of time. You're going to have to move all that stuff, and you'll end up moving a bunch of stuff home in May that they have never even opened or touched. So on a practical level, um, it's important to think about those things. On an emotional level, I think we should need to let ourselves off the hook. This is painful. And one of the things we do is beat ourselves up and say, well, why am I crying? My kid's going to college. This is what should be happening. <laughs> this is a person who means more to you than you know almost anybody on mm -hmm. earth except maybe the other close members of your family. The fact that they're leaving and that your life is changing is painful. And it may be painful for them as well. And I think we have to just, one of the things that we have found parents find very helpful 
is finding a community, finding other people who are experiencing the same thing and going through it with them, whether that community is online or in real life, whether that's one best friend, somebody that you can talk about this transition with. And I, I think what Lisa's talking about, whether it's a, a in real life friend um, or a digital community, I mean, we have been amazed with our Grown and Flown Parents Facebook group. We now have over 134,000 members, and we've seen it's now four years old, and it's grown, you know, by hundreds, literally hundreds of people every single day, all parents of high school and college kids, and we see this swell of emotion, literal <laughs> engagement rising as you, as you hit prom season and the most beautiful photos in the world, thousands of them, as people post their prom pictures and then graduation, and then we start to get this poignancy, you know, this, like, collective knot in our throats. Please, as, I'm as, tearing up as you're even suggesting no, it. Well, I mean, as people get ready to take their kids to college, it's a highly emotional moment. And I think even parents, your 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 listeners who have kids who are younger can remember what it felt like when they dropped their kid off at kindergarten or even preschool or, you know, it's it's a moment where you, you turn around and realize they're going one way and you're going another. Mm-hmm. When when it's the freshman dorm, you realize that's a that's a big moment and they're not going to be under roof for, for some time. Yeah, it is a big change. I want to switch gears for a minute to talk about another more somber uh, facet of it not being in 1986 anymore. Um, increasingly, we are aware of the ways that our teens are struggling with depression. And uh, one of the things I thought was a really important segment of the book is you tell the story of one of your sons, I think, and how you started to realize that depression um, manifests in teenagers in a very different way than it does with adults. Could you talk with us about this a little bit? Yeah, it wasn't one of our sons. Um, okay. Tracy Hargan is one of our writers, and she wrote this amazing piece where she talked about her son, Will, who was a junior in high school at the time, you know, happy, seemingly super happy, friendly, doing well in school, connected, came to her one day and said, Mom, can we talk? And she, her initial reaction once he told her that he was feeling that he was suffering from depression was to say, you can't be depressed. I see how you are. But in, in teenagers, it mani- as you're starting to say, it manifests itself quite differently. It can be like a numbness or just mm-hmm. a uncaring, just a, a feeling of detachment. It doesn't look like what, you're, what an adult might expect an adult depression to look like. And the, um, you know, she said that she completely uh, was open with him. Um, fortunately, a teacher of Will's had encouraged him to talk to his parents. And because they had this very open um, and, and solid way of communicating with each other as a family, they were able to really find the help for him. And they have actually gone on to be spokespeople. In fact, they were just on CBS, CBS Morning News at a roundtable, I believe, last week. And yeah, they last week. flew Tracy and Will to be part of the studio audience to participate in this because they feel that it's so important to be open about what he experienced, that they want to share they want him to share, Tracy wants to share from her standpoint, uh, you know, what it felt like to, to mother a teen who is suffering. And that it started with the, um, that moment where you realize you need to listen and tune in and take it seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when your kid comes to you and says, Mom, can we talk? That's the moment you put your phone down and you give them 100% of your attention. Right, where the only answer is, of course. Um, by the way, this but, is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Lisa Heffernan and Mary Dell Harrington about their book, Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teens, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. Um, parents, we'd love to hear your stories, how you've navigated these moments in your lives. Our phone are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And give us a ring. Um, so I want to talk about another one of the hard subjects that um, – I think gets, uh, unfortunately, is very connected to the emotional stress and trauma that some kids are experiencing. Um, And it, you know, the AAU survey, the American Association of Universities, um, did a follow-up survey to their 2015 survey on sexual assault on college campuses. And it's kind of horrifying to realize that 25% of college undergraduates encounter sexual assault in one form or another. Um, It does affect both genders, even though it's predominantly affecting our women students. That's one in four. As parents, what do you suggest we do 
What have you learned? Um, so that we can help prepare our kids to go into this environment without frightening them and also understand how to help them should we learn that this is happening in their orbit. It's, it's one of it's every parent's one of every parent's nightmares and mm-hmm. our fears. Um, we hear this from parents of high school students all the time that this is one of their big fears about sending their kids off. And we have a section of the book. We interviewed um, a police who a policewoman who specializes in sexual crimes. We interviewed a physician um, about what to do if such a thing happens. We interviewed a rape counselor as well, and we brought their expertise to the book. We are not experts on this topic. But one of the things that I think is very important to tell students and to explain to our kids before they look is that the kind of rape that you're talking about, the kind of sexual assault you're talking about, is not what we think of in the press. It is not somebody sneaking onto their campus who has no affiliation with the university and you know, jumping out of the bushes and grabbing them and assaulting them. It is more than likely they would know they're mm-hmm. assailant. Yep. And I and when when teenagers understand that, it has it helps them be on guard for something different. They're looking for something different than yes. what they might be looking for. And also a statistic that you noted in the book that I think was important is that the majority of those assaults happen in the first three to four months of school. And it's a dangerous time for a number of reasons. It's a dangerous time because many of our students are having their first exposure to alcohol and and drugs as well mm-hmm. in a setting where there is no adult supervision. So while teenagers, high school teenagers obviously sneak alcohol, sneak drugs, there are parents around, there are adults watching, there are people trying to intervene. Um, we keep a lid on it in, in a way that doesn't happen in college. So some of that has to do with the use of alcohol, particularly in these early years with mm-hmm. teenagers who are not prepared to drink. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I highly recommend if you're going to pick up the book, there's lots of reasons to pick up the book, but I thought the section where you talk about this was particularly useful. I want to talk about the positive side of the um, free will in life at college. So, you know, while they're hopefully not going to have these negative experiences, a lot of kids become uh, sexually active in a way they weren't in high school, um, or they, um, they're they ready to be honest about the ways that they're sexually active when they weren't in high school. As parents, um, what have you learned about productive ways to help prepare our kids for that time of their lives? You know, one of the great questions that we see in the group. Sorry, Lisa, do you want to? Go ahead, Berto. Okay, one of the big questions that we see in the group quite, quite often comes from mothers of daughters who want to know when is the best time to take their daughter to a gynecologist. And um, in many cases, as it was with me and my daughter, she had um, a skin, you know, terrible teenage acne and (laughs) needed to go see um, a gynecologist to get a prescription for Accutane because her pediatrician couldn't do that. So um, anyway, I was in a way, I felt it was a huge silver lining because it gave us this sort of very, you know, non-sexual reason (laughs) (laughs) someone who could help her with her sexual health. And um, I was super nervous in the waiting room, but um, relieved to know that Annie went back and talked to the doctor independently and privately. And I think that's actually a really big moment for mm-hmm. parents whose kids are going off to college. And I wouldn't wait until it's August before you take your kid to school. Sometime during their junior or senior year, they need to have an opportunity to speak to a medical professional about their sexual health, both boys and girls. With girls, it's, it's easier because it's, it's, you know, it's a specialist, it's a gynecologist. Right. But with boys, going into their pediatrician and giving them the time and the privacy to have the conversation about um, their health on every level is really important because this is another way where we're saying to them, we're handing off these medical decisions. We're handing off your care, your self-care and your self-health care to you. You're someone who is in the driver's seat now on this very, very important thing. So um, certainly conversations around why that's important, but having them, giving them that opportunity to talk to a medical professional privately is really key. Yeah, something that a friend of mine did um, that I thought was really interesting, and and as time has passed, she's reported that it's gone pretty well. Is that even when they were going to the pediatrician, but in a pre, when the she was still an early adolescent, um, and. She started a norm of, I'm going to give you some time to talk to your doctor alone without me in the room. Right. Yeah. And there was a nurse in the room, so they knew that it wasn't just one-to-one, but that the parent removed themselves from the situation to say to the child, you have a right to have your own relationship with your doctor. I think that's great. I think that's a huge and a a great business uh, parent practice 
I think it's also a good thing to do, um, something I did with my kids, is say, you know, okay, you're going to go see the doctor. Have you thought about some questions that you want to ask mm-hmm. her? Um, you know, are there some things that we should talk about in advance? Because it might be the case that sex is the furthest thing in their mind, you know, when they're a 16-year-old or 17-year-old. Maybe your child is sexu- sexually active at that age or possibly not. But it wouldn't be a bad thing to do for parents to say, have you thought about, you know, questions you're having around around sexual activity or this is a good opportunity for you to ask those questions to someone who, who you can trust. And okay. I'm going to give you that moment yourself. <laughs> so I want to talk about this on the flip side. And Lisa, I don't know what thoughts you have on this. Um, you know, there it's likely that the kids are thinking about sex all the time, just not in a way that they want to talk to a doctor about. They have these amazing little devices in their hands where they can get access to all kinds of things that they're working very hard to make sure we don't see. How do you suggest we help them understand that world? It's like we can't hold back the ocean during a hurricane and nor can we prevent them from going online. Um, How can we help them make sense about of what they're seeing and not be hurt by it? Um, So this is a really great thing to talk about um, because two things. One is we address a little bit of this in um, a study that we we cite in the book um, that was done at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Many parents believe that there's this hookup culture out there that our kids are wildly involved in. And it turns out not to be the case. When you give college freshmen the opportunity of what they would do on a Friday night, and one of those choices is sex with a stranger, and the other choices are things like sex in a close relationship, going out for dinner with friends, being by myself, etc. Only 14% of the respondents said sex with a stranger. So that is not the choice of most students. And what the study really found was that it's super important for us to talk about relationships. That is what our kids don't understand. That is the message they're not getting from us. So to circle back now that we know that to what you're talking about, which I imagine is the kids watching porn, it's important for us at an early age because kids are seeing porn at at the tween age, to talk about what real relationships are like and what healthy sexual relationships are like. It may not feel comfortable. It may not feel good. But here's our choice. Either we tell them what healthy sexual relationships are like between consenting adults, and as we know, that is a large amount of varying behaviors, but we're talking about consenting adults, Mm -hmm. or they decide what they're seeing online on Pornhub is a healthy sexual relationships between adults. Right. It normalizes something that's both manufactured and um, done strategically for other people's entertainment. Right. And exploitive in many, many cases. So if we haven't given them the option, they will find it. So if we haven't given them the model, they will find the model. So it's incumbent upon us, whether we want to or not, to show them and talk to them in, in more depth than maybe we always feel comfortable, but this is important about what it, what a loving relationship and sex within a loving relationship might look like to them as a teenager and then as a young adult and, and going on in their lives. We have to present the alternative to them. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So there's also another component of how we start teaching them about adult relationships, and that's not necessarily in, in sexual ways, but actually in interpersonal ways. Um, and it's something that you talk about in the book. How can we, in how we interact with our own partners, um, start to model for them ways of having a, a healthy adult relationships and talk to them about things that they're seeing, but we may not always want to explain to them, like when we fight with a partner? Probably a very good idea just to be kind of explicit. When something like that happens, our kids are probably aware that there's, even if they don't hear it, they they know that there's tension in the house. They know that, you know, maybe mom and dad aren't really sitting in the same room watching TV like they usually are. It's probably a good idea to just be candid about how we're not always in agreement. Sometimes we may lose our temper, but that we love each other. And that's the most important um, and overriding emotion that we have with our partner And I think to be, uh, again, as we recognize that they are maturing and that they're understanding the nuances of relationship and that they can appreciate the fact that there can be disagreement but also love, um, that's going to be an important thing to both talk about and and certainly to model. So now I want to jump ahead because we only have a few minutes left. Um, Your website and the book, obviously, Grown and Flown. So I want to talk about the flown part. Um, Talk to me about the definition that you use for when your kids are now adults and flown. 
I think one of the things important for us not to do is to put dollar signs on that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there was some recent research out this week from Pew, which said that parents are largely defining their kids' independence by their financial independence, and that only about a quarter of kids are financially independent at the age of 22, when many kids have finished their education. Um, but that we have to remember that when we were that age, it was only about, I think, about 35% or 40%. So it, it, it's never been most kids have been financially right. independent of 22. When, we, when we're looking for independence, we're looking for other things. We're looking on, that they're on a path towards financial independence. So we may be needing to supplement them. We may be needing to pay their cell phone bill for the end of time and their Netflix. <laughs> but, but that they're moving in that direction. It's a process. So we, they don't have to be there at a certain date. But we're looking for other things. We're looking for whether they can handle difficult decisions and hard feelings. When they're disappointed, what do they do? Do they grab a drink? Do they grab drugs? Do they go for a run? Do they meet a friend for coffee? Do they play their guitar? Do they blast music to get themselves over the mood? Have they learned how to deal with some of those hard things that we know adults have to, have to deal with? Have they managed, learned to manage their time? Being an adult means being able to manage your time. It means everyone takes the structure away and you figure out how to get done what you need to get done. Again, this is a skill that they learn through high school and through college. And by the end of college, they better be able to do that or they're not going to have a lot of success in the workplace. Another thing is how they learn to take responsibility for their actions. This is one we talk about a lot when we're talking to parents. Kids who look to blame other people and other circumstances can't change from their mistakes and can't learn from their mistakes. So have they been able to learn when they've made a mistake, change their behavior, adapt? That's what adults do. When we screw up, we, we own it, and we try to do it differently. When kids screw up, some, my kids, when I used to shout their names, they used to all say, he did it. Like all three <laughs> in unison would say, he did it. Three brothers. Um, that's that's the, a three-brother action. <laughs> that's the behavior of children. That's not the behavior of adults. And finally, something really super, super important that Mary Dell and I like to talk about, which is can they assess risk? Going through the teen years and the adult years means more and more risk. It means financial risk. Driving is a risk. Sexual risk. Alcohol and drugs have risk. There's risks. We make career risks. And have our kids gone from thinking, what could I get caught? To what could go wrong? Have they have they matured into not worrying about whether someone else is going to catch them, which is what a 16-year-old thinks when they've had a beer, to what could go wrong if we drink and we're in this situation? Well, the good news is that even though we're out of time, there's lots that can go right, and we can even help more of it go right with thanks to your book. So thanks so much to both Lisa and Mary Dell, to Patty Hall, Dion and Tooks. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Pouring into the streets Emotional freedom Means more than you think Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.